welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 183. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and today, back on the program, Jay Pestercelli, CEO of Zega Financial. Jay, how you doing today? Good. This is two weeks in a row, Derek. I'm here. It must be summertime. Yeah, a little, little summer low. A little low. <laughs> too much going on. A lot of people on vacations, and uh, some would say the markets, uh, the buyers have been on vacation the last couple of days. We'll get into that, though. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there was a little news, though, and it had to do with, you know, everyone's not, you and I have been trading options for a long time. I guess it's probably close to 30 years now for me and, and similar for you. And people seem fixated on this whole gamma squeeze and delta and market maker and forcing stuff up. So Best Buy, not Best Buy, Bed Bath & Beyond, BBY, by the way, do they sell beds in there, Jay, or is it just towels and sheets? I, I don't think they sell beds. Like it's bed, bath, and beyond, but no beds. No beds. Is that why they're losing money? They, they somebody forgot the beds. Is that the problem with the company? Maybe they forgot the bathtubs too. I don't. I don't know. It's not my kind of store, so I probably. But clearly, there's a lot of them, so it's somebody's store. What wasn't it? Uh, what was the movie? Was it old school with? Uh, where he's in the scene, he's like, I don't know, I'm going to go to Home Depot, Bed Bath & Beyond. It's going to be a pretty nice afternoon. You know, remember that? Was it Frank the Tank? Did they say that in old school? I don't know. I know that movie pretty well, but uh, I don't recall that quote. And that's that's actually bad. My bad. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I don't know if I can do anything tomorrow. He's like, we're going to Bed Bath & Beyond. You know, anyway, it's not a good experience in that store. I don't, I've no, you know, I don't follow the stock, but I do follow some of the news. And once again, it's the idea of, there's a gamma squeeze. And so let me kind of set this up. So it looks like uh, Ryan Cohen. It sounds complicated. You said gamma squeeze. It's like, sounds cool. It does sound like, cool. I'm like, whoa, what is that? Is it but we're actually going to explain it. And let me set oh. this up. All right. So Ryan Cohen, I guess he, he was on the board or he still is on the board of GameStop. So he was in there too. He was, I guess... Was he the CEO or he was involved with Chewy? Um, then he was involved with GameStop. And now it looks like from what I could dig up, and this is you know CNBC and Best Buy, Best Buy uh, Bloomberg. Bloomberg uh, reported uh, some of this stuff. But it looks like back in April, he filed. And you have to file if you're over a certain amount of the percentage of the, the stock. Looks like he owns something like 7.7 .7 million shares. And then August 15th on the SEC, looks like Form 3, SEC Form 3. And I don't pretend to know when you have to file these or, you know, what the logistics are, but I just pulled it up. So August 15th, he's got an initial statement of beneficial ownership of securities, and he's got these derivatives. So what does he have? Well, apparently he's long, which means he's bought. Uh, 11,257 call options expiring in January of 23, the 60 strike. And I will say that on August 15th, uh, Bed, Bath, and Beyond, let me just kind of give you the price here on August 15th. You know, it looks like the high was uh, 17, the low was 13.37, the close was 16. So, you know, those are far out of the money. Uh, he also apparently was long. So wait, let's, what, what do we mean by that? So when you say, you know, it's trading in the teens, but these are 60 strike options, meaning these options will have no value if uh, no intrinsic value 
if the stock doesn't go above 60 by the time January rolls around, right? That's that's what you're saying. Like it's got to go from the mid-teens to 60, right? At expiration, yeah, at expiration. At so things expiration. can happen before yeah. then, but you're right. So those are out of the money. And then let's assume he paid not nothing. Uh, I don't know when he bought these, but let's say he paid at least a buck for it. You know, your break even is $61. So yeah, it's it's trading much below that. It's a long shot. Yeah. Well, it, it gets longer because he bought 440 contracts of so a $75 strike and those uh, same January expiration. And then uh, it looks like he bought 5,000 contracts of the $80 strike, uh, same uh, January of uh, 2023 expiration. So the the idea of this, then we say contracts, now 5,000, con- each contract is worth 100 shares. So 5,000 contracts is representing the right to buy 500,000 shares at $80. You're not obligated. You have rights. 1.1257 uh, shares on, on the 60 strike and about 44,400 shares on the 75 strike. So I wanted to set that up. And the, the thing that people were making a big deal about is, well, there's a couple of things. One is, um, hey, this, this guy's long all these shares, 7 million shares, and goes and buys a bunch of way out of the money cheap options and causes a gamma squeeze. And that gamma squeeze is going to force the share price up. It's going to make his shares that he owns more valuable. And some people are kind of being like, whoa, can he do that? So, but I want to break this down. And so I want to explain exactly what a gamma squeeze is and how the delta is changing, what that means and what it means as a buyer and what it means when a market maker so, uh, has to do something. So, Jay, let's take the 5,000 because it's a nice round lot. The January 80 calls expiring in January of 23. So that's next next year. On 815, and I don't know when he bought these. I don't know if you have to file it the same day or if he bought them the 14th. And So let's just assume he bought them sometime on the 15th and the delta closed at 19, 0.19. Jay, what does this mean? Let's break this down. What what are we talking about when we say delta and gamma squeeze, and what is who has to do what? What does it mean? Yeah, so the 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 this is a little bit about market structure, right? Like what has to go on behind the scenes, right? So if he's going to get long these calls, or someone that has to sell him those calls, right? So someone buys it, uh, he buys it, somebody sells it to him, right? There's a market maker out there that you know facilitates this order. Um, and uh, this concept of the delta is really interesting because, you know, you, if you're in the market maker shoes, meaning the seller of these calls, you, um, you don't want to have to, you know, have a theory or thesis on which way the stock's going to go. Right? You want to be neutral, right? A, a market maker's goal is I don't want to take market risk. I just want to kind of be there to facilitate the market trading. And so they've just sold all of these calls, right? They sold all these calls to him. And they have to find a way of getting neutral, meaning where they're not taking market risk because they are essentially, if the market goes up, they're, they, they'd be the ones on the hook for actually, you know, uh, you know meeting the, 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 the strike price, right? Selling the stock at 80 when it was at 17, right? So they're short. 
And the, but they don't want to be short. They want to be neutral. So one of the ways that market makers get neutral is they use that delta because the delta insinuates the rate of change of the options based on the stock price move. So let me say that another way. If the stock moves up a dollar, the expectation is that the option will move up 19 cents when you have a 19 delta, right? So it's not one for one because if you go from 17 to 18, there's still not a, you know, not a lot of chance that that thing goes in the money, but there's a little more chance than when it, you know, than it was before. So what the market makers do is they'll go and they'll buy long stock and actually they'll do it at the times that they transact, right? So they don't sell the call and then go buy the stock. They do these things simultaneously because again, they have no interest of being directionally exposed to the individual ticker. So they sell the calls to him and they simultaneously buy 19 shares per contract when there's a 19 delta, right? That gets them neutral. So now if the stock goes up a dollar and uh, the, the and the options go up by, you know, 19 cents. They were long those shares so that offsets the loss on the call. So hopefully that helps put a little, you know, market structure that uh, uh, of what has to happen behind the scenes when this kind of an option trade occurs. And that's in a vacuum, right? This is assuming this was the only trade, you know, on the, and but it's not the only way to get neutral, but that assumes this was in a vacuum, right? If there was only one trade all day, most likely market maker is simultaneously buying 19 shares per contract while selling that 19 Delta call. So, all right. So that's on one contract. So one contract, if that's all we did. So if I do the math and then I want to come back to another point, but if I do the math on these 5,000 contracts at 19 Delta's, so 19 shares per one contract times 5,000 says I got to buy 95,000 shares. And I will note the, the volume was that day was like 150 million, but let's hold that for now. You mentioned something that in a vacuum, all else equal, and it never is. Let's just go back to that one contract. What if at the same time, somebody is buying a put option somewhere? That happens to be when you buy a put, you are uh, what? You're short deltas. So in theory, if somebody bought a put, right? I have I have that right, right? You do? Yes. Yep. So somebody buys a put. I'm the market maker. They buy a a, a short nineteen delta put. If I'm selling the put to them. I'm long 19 deltas, and now I don't have to do anything because in my book, I'm even, right? That's right. Those deltas can can even each other out. That's exactly right, right? Because if I sold a call and sold a put, that keeps me neutral. The difference in the deltas between that call and the put is what I'd have to you know, buy or sell in shares to get neutral. But if they're both 19 deltas and you sold the same number of contracts, you actually don't have to do anything and buy stock in the market. Correct. You're neutral. Now, at the same time, if people are selling stock, now, sometimes market makers are both mar- making markets in, in stocks and in options. But in theory, some, you know, let's say a bunch of people are selling the stock and I'm having to buy it. That's another way that I'm automatically going to not really have to do too much. Just I'm going to have to offset the sales. And, that, and what I'm getting to now is, um, all right, well, let's, let's, let's hold that. So then on August 16th, the new delta is 0.35. So I went from 0.19 
to 0.35. And the stock went up. The stock went up from the 15th to the 16th, right? Yeah, where, where, and where did it go on the 16th? So we were talking about mid-teens. Where did it go on the, uh, on the 16th? Yeah, so on the 16th, the open was 15.72. The high was 28.6. The close was 20.65. So it, it closed to close. It went up, what, like four-point-ish, right? It's a nice run. Right. It's a nice pop. And that's why the Delta went up, because, you know, if in one day it could make that move. Right. The chance of it getting to 80 just increased and that Delta moved up. By the way, an 80 Delta. Sorry. uh, The 80 strike having a 35 Delta being that far out of the money is still a little ridiculous, meaning that's that's really there's something going on in the option space for that to happen. Right. Because the chance that the stock still puts in a quadruple, right, uh, implies that, uh, uh, you know, w- with the 35 delta, which means there's a 35 chance that that happens. That's one out of 3% chance that the stock does a quadruple. That's really interesting, right? And you're and that is reflecting the idea that, hey, this guy, mu- uh, I probably shouldn't go here, but there's a chance it's reflecting this guy's been involved with meme stocks before. Maybe he knows something. Let's chase it. Right. And he's and you could create a lot of this momentum. I'm not accusing anybody of anything here. I'm just saying it when you see something that is that far out of the money with only that many months to go for it to have a 35 delta, it means there's a lot of implied volatility. It means there's a lot of speculation of what's going to go on with the stock in the options chain. So sorry, I took us down a little. You've been really good about avoiding that point. Yeah, let me let me bring it back though. So basically, on one contract on the market maker, and all else equal, it never is in a vacuum. I have to. I had to buy 19 shares. Now, when it's 35, I have to bring my position from 19 to 35 shares in my book, which means uh, I need an, an additional 16 shares. So I need on 5,000 contracts. Right. And there was and there was no offsetting option trade to do anything. It's just that the option delta improved, or I say I'll say appreciated. You got to go out and buy 16 shares for every contract to keep yourself neutral when you go from the 19 to the 35. Yeah. So it's 80,000 on 5,000 contracts. And this is what people are talking about this gamma squeeze. Gamma is sort of the second derivative of delta. This is how much delta will change for every one point move in the stock. That's why they call it a gamma squeeze. Plus, it sounds really cool. It sounds interesting. But all it's saying is, all else equal, if the stock goes up, if the delta goes up, me as the market maker to keep my positions neutral, I have to go buy more stock. And this squeeze is saying, as the stock goes up, you're squeezing the market maker. You're forcing me to buy more and more stock. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It goes round and round, goes up. I have to buy more, goes up. I have to buy more. And by the way, we haven't even mentioned, you know, this had a high short interest ratio. So maybe people are covering their shorts. So you have a short squeeze and a gamma squeeze at the same time. And this thing's going to infinity, except now it's back down to $10.29. But that's kind of what the idea is with this and why people get excited about it, right? Yeah, the idea. So back to the whole premise with the whole thing is that, you know, the options market can, you know, wag the dog, the proverbial stock market dog because of what just has to happen within the options market related to the underlying ticker. I, I will add though, Derek, right? Like we're talking here, 80,000 shares, right? 
on that, you know, on that one. Even, let's just say on all of them, they had to do, you know, 150,000 shares. What was the volume that day? 300 million, right? So it just, it's a little ingenuine to me, if that's the right word here, that, you know, that that kind of a gamma squeeze could actually materially impact the stock, right? It feels like it's one of those things that it does propagate and continue to, you know, support the idea of a bullish uh, move, but it's in and of itself with that kind of volume on that kind of option volume to me, doesn't scream that it would move the stock very much. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, before I transition to, you know, cause I think you have, you've got a good example of something way, way bigger that had no impact. I'll just say if you're sitting at home and you want to trade options during these, these crazy volatile times, I can tell you the options market is smarter than you. Here's my public service announcement. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, cause we, I always look at these and, you know, full disclosure, like I, I shorted some stuff during the, you know, I was short some call options during the, the GameStop. I mean, a tiny, tiny thing. Um, and I will tell you that the brokers go to a value at risk model for margin, which means even though you think you have enough money to cover the position, you might not. Like, it's just, you start to enter the, you know, step into my office territory and the options market knows this and they're pricing the options accordingly. And, you know, in this case, and I hope nobody like put their life, say their whole IRA into deep out of the money, GameStop or Bed Bath & Beyond options. Uh, it, apparently, if you bought options when it was, you know, close to $30, you would have been better off buying the towels at the store. They'd be worth more on resale. But Jay, when you look at, I think you were following, what is it, QYLD, and you, you've had some interesting examples of how sometimes this, this is like a, a nothing burger, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. So you take a fund, this is an $8 billion fund that is essentially a covered call fund, right? It sells at the money calls and owns the underlying, sells under, sorry, sells at the money calls on the NDX, which is the NASDAQ 100. Uh, it's the, kind of the index version of the QQQs. Um, and it just holds the individual stocks, right? So it's got a, you know, $8 billion set of, you know, long stocks, NASDAQ, Google, Microsoft, Meta, all those. And then it just sells calls uh, to generate income, right? From a volatility perspective, right? Just kind of harvesting the at-the-money income that you can get from selling calls. And the fund is interesting. We watch it for a lot of reasons. I won't even go into too much of the details that we're, we'll have a competitive product coming out sometime this year against that. But the, my point is this huge $8 billion fund every month is selling calls, right? And, you know, when I take a look at the trades that it just did last week uh, on August's expiration, you know, they had to cover something like five, $6,000, sorry, five, 6,000 contracts on the NDX, which is a $13,000 index. Do all that math. It's an $8 billion notional trade. At the same time, they had to kind of pay for uh, what it costs to cover their expiring call, right? So they sold the September call, but they had to cover their new, uh, their old uh, August call. And they had to sell, you know, a billion dollars worth of stock. And there wasn't a blip in the market uh, on that day, on the night, I think it was the 19th. It was hardly even a blip when this transaction occurred. And so we're talking about, you know, they owned the NDX options market that day, right? They were clearly the highest trader. They were probably you know, add up all the rest of the volume. I don't know particularly exactly what it is. They're probably double 
of all the other volume, but it didn't move anything, right? Nothing really moved. And so, you know, it's, it's sometimes that can happen where it might move it, but you know, the options market, A, knows it was coming because this is a fund that's been around for a while. Uh, and uh, uh, B, it prepares for that. And you get these trades that turn out to be a big whole lot of nothing. And the, in those scenarios, the tail cannot wag the dog. And so, you know, I think that, I think there's, you know, stories. Uh, I think it's a little overblown, the, the gamma squeeze that we're talking about on Bed Bath & Beyond. But, you know, when you can point to much bigger behemoths doing trades of this size in the marketplace and not having an impact on an index, I think that kind of supports that point that options don't always move the needle. I will say that, no, I, I agree. And I think that's a great example of where you'd say, oh, wow, you know, it's $8 billion. I think the the problem with economics is always, and with finance and trading, is sometimes people look at things and they assume that nothing else has changed. The whole, quote unquote, all else being equal. Was it Ceratus Paribus? I think that's the Latin for that. I should know that, but uh, I had to think about it for a second. But you just don't know what else is going on. Now, I will say, you know, when there are strong sell-offs in the markets and people are positioned a certain way, sometimes you get a little bit of a liquidity feedback and it exacerbates a move down or move higher. I mean, I think you would agree with that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, look, short squeezes are a real thing, right? We definitely know that's a real thing and that can occur. But it really takes the market to get out of balance for those to to to, to occur. And then people are forced to act, right? When investors or you know holders of any kind of position are forced to act, that's when things can get a little out of control. An example you love to always reference was, you know, the night that the XIV had to shut their doors, had to close down, right? That inverse volatility fund that was essentially short volatility. And when you're short volatility, a volatility doubles, you know, goes up 100%. That means you go down 100%, right? Your, your fund is done, close the doors. So I know that you like to point to that. And, that, you know, volatility didn't even actually double that day, but it did once people had to kind of cover what gosh when was that was that in uh apocalypse yeah it was it was february Not of 2018 2018 was that 2018 or 19 it was, it was, it was in february february or whatever yeah. yeah yeah and like and you know what it was actually you know and it kind of put itself, you know, had to shut its fund down, had to lock it down and just say, okay, we're done. You know, this thing's, we had the event that could shut us down and it happened. And so, but it was, but it occurred because the underlying uh, fund was forced to do something uh, and that caused that. So you're right where there's times, and that's an example where a futures market and a futures based ETF caused a whole other fallout because a lot of people held that. But uh, yes, so you definitely can have squeezes, Derek. I'm not saying they don't exist, uh, but uh, you know, rodents of unusual size, I don't think they exist. There's a little Princess Bride reference for you. But I do, I do think that in this case, the Bed Bath Beyond one seems a little, there's something else there. And I think it's probably related more to the, you know, the, the underlying holders involvement in other meme type stocks, not the options market and not the gamma squeeze. Do you know that... Uh... What was it? AMC. And I like their theaters. They're, uh, uh, what do they call it? They're like high end where it's this, the awesome sound and the awesome picture. They're really, it's a really good experience. 
but uh, they actually issue preferred shares. I don't know. It, it's just, anyway, we'll save that for another time. We'll do like how to do intrinsic valuation on a company that. Listen, AMC has done a lot of kind of wacky things and they had to, to survive uh, COVID, right? And I think they're doing okay right now, but right. They issued the eight, uh, which they're calling Amazon uh, preferred uh, uh, equity, right? Or Amazon preferred. Yeah. And then uh, AMC also, preferred equity. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And then they did something like they made a whole bunch of investments in gold mines. Like how is that even relevant? But they did. So it's, yeah, it's really, it's definitely, I, my hat's off to that company trying to do whatever it takes to survive and they're around and you're right. We like the theaters. It's, I do remember this was, this is in the 1990s, uh, when I had access to a, uh, a Bloomberg machine, you know, right behind me. I would uh, every once in a while you'd see these companies that would take over like an old company. So I remember this is one company. It was a chiropractor and a miner, and I'm like chiropractor and mining. That seems like a great combination. You know, like the guys are mining, they hurt their backs, and you got the chiropractor there. <laughs> you think that's it? <laughs> no, it was a shell. You know how that goes. There's a, there's a company that's yeah. worthless, and it's cheaper to go take somebody out because you don't have to file. You just take it over. Yeah, um, but I remember you know somebody was buying it, so I'm like, they're like, oh, this is this stock is going up. It was one of those like penny stocks that went from like, you know, one tenth of a penny to a penny, and people started buying it. And uh, I looked it up, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know about this. So, uh, all right, so let's when there, were the, when there were the boards, right? You would like follow the message boards and try to catch it. It was like you know before memes were a thing, it was the message boards that you were. That That's you were right. Trolling. Yeah, I mean, it, this wasn't new, and it was. It, we've talked about this before. It was the whole, if you lived really close to where whoever the newsletter provider was, where they sold, where they sent out their newsletters, you got in first, and you drove, you got to ride the stock up and get out before the people who live, you know, further away, bought. I mean, literally. I mean, think about that for a second. Somebody puts a newsletter out, like these penny stock newsletters. They send it out. And somebody gets it, they buy. So first in is always, you know, better. And then people start to get their mail and they keep buying, but the people who got in early would get out. It was this. So I remember I've told this story before. I remember there was this one newsletter I subscribed to and uh, I found out where they were, were sending it from. And I was in a fantasy baseball league with someone who lived near there. And I had my subscription sent there and I just had the guy call me when he opened his mail and it was great. So that's that's my newsletter experience, my optimization of newsletter. And I'm sure you would expect that I would do something like that, right? Pre-internet. There you go. Pre-internet. Pre-internet. All right. So last thing I want to talk about is I'm going to do my best. Uh, I think it was Chris Tucker in uh, one of the Jackie Chan movies. Uh, Chairman Powell this morning, and by the time people are listening to this, it will be Sunday morning. But Powell came out today and he gave a little bit of speech didn't take questions. He basically, uh, and it was one of those, did you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Because apparently the market didn't get it the last time when he did a press conference uh, last month. The market took everything he said. And, and to me, he didn't say they were going to pivot and they were going to lower rates. But the market's initial reaction that time was rates went lower, the market went higher. Seems today the market heard loud and clear, and he said again, "We're not going to pivot, and we're going to keep raising rates until inflation is good, gone, and buried." Uh, is that what you heard this morning too, Jay? 
Yeah, it was really clear. It was really short. It was very, you know, he actually really did say, <laughs> he really almost slapped the market in the face a little bit today. Like, what you guys are interpreting is not what I said, right? And I think a lot of it stems from the Fed's disappointment with rates inverting farther out the curve, right? So, you know, the the, the near-term uh, rates have definitely been going up. I think this morning, uh, uh, you know, that short, term rate that we looked at hit like a new high right through this whole cycle. So the near term rates are definitely believing them. But then you look at like the fives and the tens and the, you know, the market is telling us, ah, they're going to have to lower it sometime. They're going to run up rates and then they're going to bring it down. And so you had this yield inversion, which just all that means is that shorter term rates are higher than, you know, farther out term rates. And, and he, I think he came out and said, look, we didn't say that was even a possibility here, right? So he, I think he tried to just give the market a little bit of a, throw a little cold water on the bond market to say, you know, we don't have any plans to cut rates. Uh, we want to, you know, like you said, bury inflation. They've even said, I've heard a couple of Fed governors say this, they're doing a lot of interviews out in Jackson Hole right now. Uh, but they've even, you know, a lot of them have said, look, like we think we should be higher for longer. I don't know how much longer is, but we got to really make sure we get this under control. And they still are keeping their inflation target at 2%, right? So, you know, we've got to come down from the nines to two, uh, to get us, you know, it's going to take a little while to do that. Now you can, there is some theory out there that if you just wait, as long as inflation can really slow down, the increases will slow down. You'll get the year over year effect and be like, look, 2% increase. But, you know, it's, uh, they don't know that, right? They don't, they, they do say, you know, some things are starting to show some relief, but as far as all the messages have gone, it's been really clear. We're going to raise more and we're going to keep it there. Don't expect us to lower it anytime soon. Of course, the data could change their mind. That's happened before, but that's what they're communicating. And it wouldn't be the first time that uh, the Fed has not done what it's communicated, but that's what they said today. So, and I think he even said we should expect some pain. I mean, there's pain coming to the stock market investor uh, because we don't care about the stock market. We care about beating inflation down. I think he's been calling it price stability, right? Inflation pricing stability. But that's that's what they mean when they talk about pricing stability. They mean prices of goods. They want to, you know, really bring it back down and. You know, be damned stock market for now. We're not paying attention to you on that. And we think the economy can handle it if we do that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And and uh, I will say that this is why on our investment side and the way we manage money and we build strategies that we hedge because I would say that, you know, the Fed, we, we still don't know exactly what to do. And we don't know if the market necessarily will react badly to what they're doing. And, and by the way, if people want to get a, a more of an idea of our existing strategies and Jay kind of teased uh, some things that are coming, always send me emails, Derek.Moore at ZegaFinancial.com, D-E-R-E-K.M-O-O-R-E at Z as in Zebra, E as in Eddie, G as in George, A as in Apple, Financial.com. Financial's up to you to spell correctly. Uh, also send me emails about topics. I did have somebody ask me about the the gamma squeeze, and it's how we went down that rabbit hole earlier. I will say, though, Jay, on the Fed funds futures, they've been sort of consistent. I mean, they dropped, and I'll explain what those are. They dropped, meaning the implied uh, terminal interest rate where where the Fed will stop at. 
but you know, they've uh, the rates now are now implying, uh, if I'm doing my math right, 3.81% has the implied Fed funds rate. You might say, well, how do I do that? It's magic. I'm not going to tell you. No, I'll tell you. I'm looking at the Fed funds futures contracts, and there's a series of contracts. And I'm looking at the April of next year contract, which is priced at 96.190. That dropped today. And you might say, well, that means rates drop. No, no, no. The way you do the implied Fed funds rate is you take 100 minus that price. And that's the implied rate is, is what's being priced in there. And so, I mean, Jay, there's that's down 0.02, meaning rates, the implied rate from that contract the rate implied is going higher a little bit. So I think the Fed funds futures have been pretty consistent from what I see. I think the 10-year and some of the other maturities in the, in the treasury market got it wrong. And I think the market got it wrong, as you said. But as we keep telling everyone, like, I mean, just be hedged. Just be hedged. Just you're not going to get this right. You're not going to time it right. And, you know, it's, it's just, if we, and by the way, I, I don't know. I mean, I know the debate for a while and we did a whole show about it. We'll link to that. I'll link to the show we did last week about the debate. Are we in a recession or not? As you say, it really doesn't matter. But I think the Fed funds futures have been really consistent, Jay. And I think the market, the bond market got it wrong. They weren't listening. They weren't understanding the words that were coming out of Jay Powell's mouth. Yes, and I, I, I appreciate you not trying to uh, do a little more rush hour Chris Tucker for us. Yeah. That's, uh, that's good. You did it once. That was painful. I will say, uh, Derek, to your point that about the hedging thing is like, yeah, like we don't know. We don't know how the market's going to react. You know, if we were reacting to all of the fear in June, you'd be like, wow, how could you even be invested in the stock market right now? And the market then proceeded to bounce 15, 19%, right? So it's, it's when you're hedged, you could stay invested in the market. Um, and you could manage your risk. And so that's, you know, one of the major premises that we, we do. So it, 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 it stops the market timing, right? I, I don't, you know, we don't do a lot of forecasting here, but there's plenty of people that would tell you that a year, two years from now, market's probably higher than where it is today. So when is your entry point? I don't know, but if I have a long-term horizon, why not just be in, but be hedged, right? Like that's, uh, to us, that's a concept that makes investing so much easier over the long term. You want a day trade, you want a swing trade one, two, three weeks at a time. That gets hard, right? You get whipsawed and you got to be right a lot because you're going to be wrong sometimes. You know that. Um, I, the last point you're talking about with the, with the bond market, Derek, you know, when we, we, um, we still think that uh, it's better to be a little shorter in duration if you're going to hold some bonds, right? You're going to be a little safer in that perspective. Um, and we're starting to find some interesting entry points for portfolios that are only going to be run for two to three years at a time, right? Like the, the higher rates are not the worst thing in the world for investing. Um, it doesn't mean it's, it does, it doesn't apply to everything, but for some, you know, uh, investors having a three, three and a half percent two year, it's actually a pretty great thing, right? I know it's not outpacing inflation, but, um, you could use that kind of safe, I'll call it safe. Maybe I'm not allowed to say the word safe that, that presumed safe income by holding a treasury, to do other things in a portfolio, right? Like buy yourself some upside exposure in the options market and have it paid for with treasuries, right? Things like that. It's the construction of products starts to get a little more interesting 
uh, when you have some higher rates. And so we, you know, we're not against it. We welcome it. We have uses for higher rates across our portfolios. But I just, you know, again, it's it all depends what you're trying to achieve. I think we don't know what we don't know yet, and uh, it should be a very interesting fall season. I know you're pretty optimistic about markets during a mid-year election, midterm election. I'll let you take that in a minute, but I will also throw in there September historically is the worst month in the stock market. So, you know, digest those things. I didn't, you know, want to take you down the the midterm election rabbit hole, Dark. Maybe there's a whole nother podcast on that one. Oh, teasing maybe next week. I will say we sort of debunked the the notion last week and I'll link to that the whole hey when mark during a bear market when markets retrace 50% of the bear market move they never make a new low i think we debunked that i showed at least one if not two examples of that i will say since robert f kennedy or rfk uh, looking back to his midterm election going to the the last one uh, during trump's last uh, you know two years in office I can say that the market has never been lower six months after an election. And uh, I'll tease it there because there's a lot to get into for another episode. Uh, I will just say, too, before we uh, go off on some things that maybe have no uh, correlation to the market, default rates in, in high yield bonds as of August 25th, according to JP Morgan's Guide to the Markets, default rate is 1.09%. Long run average wow. is three point six percent. Defaults so are really low. That's so what low. you're afraid of. That's what you're afraid of with high. If you own high yield bonds, you're afraid of rising rates. And again, if you're shorter in duration, that impact is is less of a problem. And you're really afraid of default rates. Default rates are really low. Really low, right? Really now. low. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but Jay, that's that's minuscule. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, and uh, probably because a lot of uh, companies that could, you know, refinance when rates were much lower did, and they're not forced to kind of, you know, dr- you know, default on debt that they locked in at, you know, four or five percent, right? So uh, maybe that is a whole nother conversation there. Um, I, I feel, Derek, I, I culturally, I have a correction I need to make from something I said last week, and I'm oh, okay. Almost embarrassed. Let's do that. I'm embarrassed make- for myself. Oh, you know, I was talking about the new Star Trek series, and I've been a Trekkie my whole life. My dad's been a Trekkie since the 60s. I, gosh, I hope he didn't listen to the podcast last week. But the show I was referring to was the new Star Trek Strange New World. I think I said Undiscovered. I don't know what the heck I was talking about. I think I was thinking about some movie and one of the Undiscovered Country. So I, I apologize for any Star Trek fans out there. I know a handful of you uh, are, and so my apologies. So, you know, fan of the new series, Star Trek Strange New Worlds with Captain Christopher Pike, not Captain Kirk. So there you go. Sorry, I needed to correct that one. It's been burning me all week, Derek. Sorry. (laughs) And again, I said last week, I'm still, it's still crazy. It's always the trivia question. How many years was the original Star Trek on in in the 60s? And it's, it was two, right? That's two and a half seasons. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's yeah, crazy. You would have I thought know. it was on 20 years. And I mean, all right. So any recommendations this week, Jay, from uh, I know you watched House of Dragons. I did not. I'm going to wait until there's like 5,000 episodes, maybe until I invest my time in that one. But uh, any recommendations? Yeah, ha- House of the Dragon was good. Not as good as the uh, first episode of Game of Thrones. So 
good. You know, if you're a Thrones fan, you, you're kind of obligated to watch it. I know you'll catch up at some point. Um, you know, my recommendation, it's a series I just finished. Uh, you know, it's kind of fun. It's kind of light. Half hour episodes was uh, Only Murderers in the Buildings with Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. Actually pretty entertaining, funny, uh, you know, very light. You know, not heavy like the Blackbird you have me now watching. Yeah. No, I'm, I finished Blackbird. I'm not going to spoil for anybody, but heavy topic, really good show. Yeah, and it was good to see Ray Liotta, right? Like Ray Liotta's in that show. I wish you had told me Ray Liotta was in the show. I would have watched it earlier. Like I'm a huge Ray Liotta fan. He's no longer with us, but uh, his he passed this year. I don't know if this was the show he was working on. Probably not, but yeah. Good. If you like Ray Liotta, then you're going to get a little Ray, Ray Liotta fix in that uh, Blackbird. I do, you know, I don't know if he passed during a primary filming. I don't want to, you know, I'm going to spoil it if I tell you. I will say one of the episodes they did give uh, at the end during the credits, you know, uh, a little mention that, that he passed. So maybe that was the I series think. he was shooting when he passed. Yeah, I'm not there yet. Don't don't get don't don't reveal. No, no, he was he was really good in it. Um, I will. So I did watch something on Netflix. It's the uh, the, uh, and I'll tell you why I have an interest in this. Uh, DB, you know who DB Cooper is the guy who uh, hijacked a plane. Yeah, uh, that disappeared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was 1971. It was a, a a flight. It was a jet, and he requests suitcase full of money, and then he parachuted out of the back of the plane. And uh, so there was, I think it's six or seven episode, uh, you know, documentary on it. But the reason why I'm interested in this, I was always interested in the case, uh, but a couple of years ago, they came up with uh, one of the, the, the groups that are looking at this, uh, a potential suspect. And that potential suspect, I would be related to through marriage. So that's why uh, I, nice. I don't. Yeah, so uh, that's that's kind of my my latest interest in this, and uh, yeah, so I, I would if that's the guy, I would be related to him through uh, through marriage. So I haven't seen any big you know large expenditures at your house or anything, Derek. So I'm not I'm not <laughs> sure if you got any benefits from that. <laughs> I've never actually talked to this uh, to this person, but uh, did he come to your wedding? He was not at our wedding. No, he was All not right, at our so wedding. So not that well related. Got it. Okay. All right. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> your license sounds he, safe to me. <laughs> but he he lived in uh, San Diego. He's since passed. But um, but yeah. He, so he's one of the prime suspects from this one group. And so one of the the episodes is all about him and uh, why they think he's the suspect, and it clearly points to him and some other stuff. So uh, so anyway, DB Cooper. It's a fascinating story. It's one of the most interesting cases not to be solved by the FBI. And he never hurt anyone. He jumped out of a plane with, I guess, $200,000 and the 1971 dollars. I guess, you know, I could do the math real quick. That's, uh, you know, inflation adjusted. And hey, inflation's pretty, pretty big right now. You know, 1.03% a year. What is that? 50 years? You know, that's like, uh, what is that, 876000 in today's dollars, if I think if I did my math right. Maybe I didn't. But anyway, that was my recommendation. All right. Yeah. We'll watch that but one. But I have a okay. rooting interest in it because when there I write that book, everything I know about the D.B. Cooper hijacking and I know nothing, it will be a blank <laughs> page. Uh, You'll include There you go. Yeah. All right, Jay. I think we'll uh, we'll call it there next week. 
yeah, maybe next week uh, you should come on and we should look at the data from historical midterm elections because it is it is quite interesting. And I think there's something there. So we'll call it there. Watch all that stuff or don't watch it. Send me emails and uh, we'll talk to you. Jay, thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Derek.